Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from... William A. Aguirre. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. That's, and it's funny, and I'll tell you why. Gonna, <laughs> that's a good one, man. Uh, I'll tell you why. Look, I wasn't All right, welcome to Death Row Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nogueira. And this is part two of our chronicling of Charles Manson and his life of crime and exploits and some uh, very strange, strange details surrounding his case. So uh, when we left off on part two, there was a lot going on. Manson, his parole officer, Roger Smith, had allowed him to go to Mexico to do agricultural work unsupervised. Um, you know, this is a multiple-time felon. Roger Smith then, uh, as far as I can tell, I, he adopts Charles Manson's son and uh, his baby child, that is, and Manson goes off into the desert hangs out for a little while and then we know what happens when he resurfaces right yeah i mean he does resurface and everybody thinks it's around august and because that's when the the tape murders happen but we have to go back a little bit and it's it's just about a month and a half and we're at the end of june where he, he resurfaces and actually on july the first He's back at the ranch, and he needs money. And Tex, Tex Watson uh, knows a drug dealer, who actually his girlfriend does. And they kind of set it up to get this guy, Bernard Crow, who was, who was an African-American. And Tex Watson basically, in a, in a nutshell, rips him off for $2,500. That's a lot of money in 1969. His following is kind of falling apart for a bit. 
Uh, he needs something. So Tex Watson decides to rip off a guy by the name of Bernard Crow. And Bernard Crow is an African-American guy. He's not a Black Panther, but he gives Tex Watson the impression that he is. That is a slow Tex Watson down. He, ex- he ends up ripping him off for $2,500, which is an incredibly up large amount of money in 1969. And he leaves his girlfriend there kind of like collateral. And when they realize Tex is not coming back, they force Tex Watson's kind of off and on, on again girlfriend to tell them where he's at. So Bernard basically just calls at the ranch and asks for Charles, not knowing that Tex Watson, well, he knows Tex Watson's first name is Charles, but he doesn't know that the only Charles at the ranch that anybody answers to is Charles Manson. So he gets Charles Manson on the phone and tells him, hey, I want my money back. At that point, Charles Manson basically tells you, you're the wrong guy. I'm not the guy you think, and I haven't seen that guy in two or three weeks. Long story short, they agree to meet both Charles Manson and Bernard Crow. And he demands his money back. Uh, Charles Manson goes there with a gun. And the plan is to basically kill this guy. But when they show up, he has other people there. And there's this back and forth between Charles Manson and Bernard Crow, and he's demanding his money. And when he realizes he's not going to get it, um, he gets a little pushy. And it turns out that Charles Manson is actually a killer. He pulls the gun out and shoots Bernard King in the chest. And it takes off. A lot of people don't know about this particular murder, but this is a murder that Charles Manson actually did. And of course, because of the Black Panther, you know, you know, the suggestions that he was the Black Panther, he, he kind of suggested it to Charles Manson as well. That's where Charles Manson begins this doomsday philosophy that the Black Man's gonna take over the world, that they're coming for him, that they'll lift him the the, the, the governing master. That's how this whole thing starts. And of course, then um, he basically gets involved with tape murders by bringing his followers into that. Yeah. So you got to be pretty loony to to believe this philosophy um, that, you know, they're going to essentially bait the world into a race war, I think is the point. Um, and so, you know, Manson isn't there when they, the first house that they arrive at is the Cielo Drive house in, um, in Laurel Canyon. And, uh, you know, this was a a party house. This was not, I mean, no one knows exactly, but in my opinion, this was not targeted randomly. People like Manson and his followers were, were coming in and out of there to Roman Polanski's house um, because he had drug dealers and 
low lifes and just I don't know hippies and partiers you know coming in and out of there all the time and so you know that night that's where the followers arrive yeah all of these houses are related you have Dennis Wilson you have all of these producers and um, people in the music industry that get involved with these people I mean, Charles Manson at one point was running around with the producer of the Beach Boys. You know, he was running around with talent agents. And, and you know, it, it wasn't far-fetched for this guy to be in the stars' homes. Greg Jackson was a, was a talent agent. Uh, Terry Mex, uh, Melcher, he was, they were known as the Golden uh, Penetrators. Dennis Wilson as well. The three of them were known as the Golden Penetrators because of the sexual exploits. And they liked the girls that Manson brought around. So you're right. They knew these people. Didn't know them well. The, the Tate home, which is Rowan Polowski's, Polowski's house, was not a random, you know, just pick a house out of, out of a hat. They knew where they were going. And unfortunately for Mrs. Tate and... You know, the people that were there, which was, uh, of course, Sharon Tate, uh, Jay Sebring, Voltec Fredovsky, uh, Abigail Folger, who was the hair of the Folger's Coffee Fortune, Stephen Parent, all them people were there when Tex Watson and his uh, accomplices came into the house and basically just butchered everybody there. And they had a a saying, uh, Abigail and a lot of these people that you would hear at parties from time to time, which was live crazy, die crazy. Um, you get that general philosophy, I guess. But, uh, yeah. I guess that it was true to a degree. Yeah. It's unfortunate because I mean, this, it's, it's almost, I mean, you have to sit back and just, Imagine what it was in those days, how people were, and how can someone follow a guy like Charles Manson, who was, for lack of a better word, absolutely nuts. There's no rationale to what he said. And preaching the doomsday philosophy that he did, there was no reasonable theory or anything. It was just stuff he made up as he went along because he wanted to keep these people close to him. And obviously it worked. But after the 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 God, the horrible killings that he did, I mean those people in that home, the five people at the at the Tay home, I mean, um, Sharon Tay was found. She was actually eight months pregnant. She was found with a noose around her neck and the rope tied around the beam. Um, there was a person in the car who was Stephen uh, Parent. And he was shot, by the way, by Tex Watson. He was the first one to die. And by the way, the gun that he used, that Tex Watson used, was the same gun that Charles Manson used on Bernard Crow a month, about a month and a half earlier. Um, and the rest of the people were just basically butchered in the front lawn. Um, a young lady was found. Uh, the other person was found in the room. I mean, these people were just basically butchered with a knife. They were stabbed over 130 times. That's a lot. It's a huge volume. Um, it, almost like a rage. You would put this kind of people in this category as a rage killing, but there really wasn't any rage because they didn't know these people, which it always leaves uh, people with theories about this 
kind of scratching your head. Usually when you have this type of anger or rage or that volume of stabbing, it's behind a personal uh, vendetta, something very personal. And it wasn't. These uh, perpetrators were not intent or did not know any of these people very closely. Yeah, it makes no sense. It, it <clears throat> It's not a jump to think that they were programmed somehow or, or that they were uh, certainly not in their right minds. You know, after they were apprehended, they were remorseless. They were aware of what they had done. Um, but just, again, with this kind of BS philosophy that is, is not really worth dignifying, but just... Uh, you know, nothing really matters, man, bro, type of thing. I would venture as far as saying that they're all in the influence probably of LSD and methamphetamines when they committed this particular first crime. And, of course, they follow up the following day. Yeah, so, of course, notoriously inscribed, uh, not inscribed, but uh, painted, wiped in blood on the front door of Sharon Tate and... Roman Polanski's house is the word pig. And I'm going to get to why that's noteworthy a little bit later. So now we move on to the, uh, to the LaBianca household and that's in Los Feliz, about four miles from the other house. Yeah. And they just basically Charles Manson is there and one of his followers actually testifies during the trial that Manson actually ordered this hit, that, you know, he went in there, uh, he wasn't satisfied with what happened at the Tate house, so he was kind of the guy on the scene. He went in there, he, he set everything up, and then he just basically sicked his animals on um, Lena and Rosemary. Um, so, and he drives off. So, this is like, you know, you said programmed, yeah, that's part of the, the how you break people down and you have them do whatever you want by reprogramming their brains. And this is what we've seen throughout his history with these particular cult followers. You have also Lynette Squeaky Fromm. I mean, what does she do in Sacramento, California with the president? It's basically the same thing. There's no conscious thought. They're basically programmed and they do what they do. And you mentioned the word pig and piggy. This is something that he also has uh, done before. Um, as I mentioned, when you and I were talking off the air, that there was more than just the seven murders that most people know about. He actually was involved in 10 murders. And, um, you know, one of them was uh, a musician by the name of Gary Hyman. And on the wall of his room, also, the word political piggy was written on there. Right. And so after this uh, older businessman, Leno LaBianca, and his wife. So his wife was known to Manson because she was a charitable person. She would take in street kids from time to time and, you know, kind of foster people that needed it. And so she was kind of known in the hippie community. I think that's why they were aware of her house, which again is like, I, I'm trying to understand the reasoning. This is a a charitable woman who's known for her charity, and she's the person you pick to kill just because you know where she lives. I mean, that's what we're working with. Well, yes. 
Well, there, there's supposed to have been a party at that home a couple weeks prior to that, and Manson was at the house, so he knew it by then, what the house was about, who lived there. Um, there but there's also the, the anger that Charles Manson had. Charles Manson felt slighted. Um, you know, the guys on the Beach Boys, Dennis Wilson and his uh, talent agent, and the people he hung around with basically promised Manson a recording contract. And at one point, they showed up to the to the ranch and gave him a $50 bill. And Manson took that as being a down payment for services that would be rendered um, in a recording studio. So he was, of course, we're dealing with a person who's not sane. So how he translated that into these murders is something we're probably never going to understand. But it, it comes from all this, from the first murder of um, uh, Bernard Crow to the dealings with the Beach Boys, to feeling slighted. It's just, it's like this tumbling thing that goes downhill and it's gaining momentum. And Charles Manson, he basically has Dobermans to do his bidding and he's just taking it out of whoever he wants to, for whatever reason seems logical in that brain of his. Right. Um, <clears throat> and so these are... You know, these are, again, brutal murders with uh, pig or piggy written in blood on the wall very uh, prominently. And I have a question for you, Bill, because you're a smart guy and these are two mass murders one day apart, both with uh, an iteration of pig written in blood uh, at the crime scene. And it takes the LAPD four months to connect these two crimes, to admit that they were connected. Why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess the question you're asking is why? Yeah. Well, yeah, good question. Most of the time, I would say the excuse is or the, the reason is because police departments don't talk to each other. They don't share information because they want to catch the culprits. The other thing is that there was no direct contact between Manson and his and the Tate murders as well as the LaBianca murders. There was no clear cut. Uh, there was no fingerprint. It isn't today's where you can just run prints through a computer and it pops up. There was no witnesses. And it actually took one of Manson's followers to open her mouth while she was incarcerated for them to catch wind of what was really going on. So, you know, police departments, they do what they do. And they, they, you know, this is a long time ago. This is before CSI and forensic, uh, forensic uh, uh, techniques. This is kind of in the infancy of just criminal um, detective work. So I, there's a lot of reasons why it could happen. I mean, I kind of want to say that it was probably because they didn't have the technology to, um, I'm sure there were fingerprints there. I'm sure they got some, but to take the fingerprints from a crime scene and compare it to millions of people in California, it would take the rest of someone's life to do that. Yeah, they didn't have computer systems to run the prints through it, and that's why they couldn't connect these murders right away. Um, but it took one of the Manson followers to actually start talking, and she did so. And, she, I mean, basically, she became the star witness against Manson. 
Yeah. So these, do you remember these trials? Because I'm looking at the footage, and when you know it takes a while, but finally, you know they they pin Manson as the guy. They they have this enormous raid, and and bust him up at Spawn Ranch, and when we get to the trials, there are the followers of Manson out front of the court, you know, barefoot shaved heads, um, espousing their dedication to him as, uh, I don't know, a, a demagogue of some sort, a living God. I don't know. And, uh, the spectacle to me, it's something I would have been fascinated with you know, if it happened now. Well, the general public was. Yeah, the general public was, but I think that's what sunk his boat. You know, they were first, they were in the courthouse, but they were asked to leave. They were actually escorted out of the courthouse because of the outburst during the trial. So, of course, they camped outside, and they, you know, they, they, there was a lot of things that they were supposed to have been doing. They, they were going to light themselves on fire if they didn't release Manson. But all that was proving to the jury, to the judge, to everybody in America who was watching it, was that this guy has complete control of these people, and it's very likely that he had these people killed because they would do whatever it took to please him. And that was a huge center part of the DA's case. Um, Madison shows up in court with an X on his forehead, and he says, I've done it because I've X'd myself out of your world. That sounds kind of cool. It sounds kind of poetic in a way. But the next day, his his followers and his uh, co-defendants, they also show up in court with X's on their forehead, which again shows the kind of dominant and the kind of uh, power he has over everyone surrounding him. Of course, to him, it was the most fascinating thing in the world because he got people to do what they wanted. They were talking about him. And, of course, during the trial, President Nixon begins to talk about Charles Manson. Imagine if you're a narcissistic person with personality disorder and everything else wrong with this guy. And you got the president of the United States on national TV talking about you. That's the biggest, uh, you know, it's the happiest day in the world for this guy. Yeah, absolutely. He's he's relishing every minute of it. You can tell he's kind of giddy and and trembling with excitement. I mean, I think I think he knows at this point his rock and roll career uh, is not going to be extant, and I think he feels well. This is the closest thing I got, and he just ran with it. Yeah, and it gets worse because in the courtroom, you know. Charles Manson gets a hold of his newspaper and he shows the jury. Nixon says, you know, Manson's guilty. It's just antics. The entire trial was a circus. And um, on both sides, I mean, believe me, the DA was a smart guy. He knew how to convict this guy. He just let him do what he wanted to do best. And, of course, the antics continued. During the trial, Charles Manson jumps out of his chair during the trial with a sharpened pencil in his hand. And he attempts to, to stab the judge. Of course, they stopped him. He wasn't going to do anything. It was antics. It was, look at the kind of guy that I am. And, you know, he's ordering he, the, the, the female defendants as well not to testify. And then he kind of switches up when they start with the, the, the trial, the, the, the phase of the trial where 
he might get a death penalty, he begins to change his tune. And I think that the, his followers began to understand that this guy wasn't telling the truth because he always told them, I'm the truth. I am God. I am the devil. I am truth. And it seems to be changing. He's acting out. He's doing all this crazy stuff. And basically, it's just a joke. And of course, we all know they convicted him. They convicted him of all the charges, first-degree murder. He was... Um, he was sentenced um, by that judge to death. But, um, you know, it isn't the end of the story because in 1972, just in 1972, there was a big change in the opinion of the death penalty. Uh, Charles Manson, on April 22nd, 1971, is sent to prison for seven counts of murder um, of the the Tejon murders, as well as the um, uh, Lino and Rosemary LaBianca murders. Um, but in 1971, he's again convicted of two more murders, that of musician Gary Hyman and for the murder of Donald Jerome Shorty Shea, who was not found till much later. Um, it just... He goes to death row. He's here on on death row in East Block. No, I'm sorry, East Block. He's in North Seg, which is the original death row. And he's only there about maybe a year and a half because, of course, the U.S. Supreme Court rules that the death penalty is unconstitutional. It's cruel and unusual punishment. So kind of that goes back and forth. He's given life which back then was seven years to life. And uh, he goes off into prison. But things get really bad for Charles Manson in prison. And, you know, the public probably knows a lot about the murders because you can see it on television, you can look this stuff in archives and know about Charles Manson outside of prison. What the public doesn't know is what happened to him while he was in prison. And that's part of this show that I bring that... You have 60 seconds remaining that really no one else can talk about. And we're gonna talk about that when I return, but it is very interesting. Because if you recall, I called Charles Manson a, a child molester before for pimping a 16 year old girl. Well, that comes back to haunt him while he's in prison in California. And I'll be back. We're back, man. All right, so I'm I'm dying to get your your take, your experience on this, because I can, as a layperson, see a few things working against Manson in prison. Uh, he's tiny. Everything he's done is widely publicized, I guess, including the kind of pimping out of, uh, of 16 year old girls. And I'm sure a lot of stuff in there that could be considered rape. Um, also he's like vilely openly racist to a, to almost a level that's just on a different plane because he, you know, he's talking about a, a race war and everything. So I'm assuming that didn't help him at all. Yeah. So yeah, you're, you're right about everything you said right there, but there, so being completely candid here, there are a lot of racist people in prison. <laughs> that's not uh, something you have to look very far. There are guys running around with swastikas on their chest there's guys with, you know, everything from brown power to white power to black power all over their bodies. That is not 
um, looked upon as something weird in prison. They have the guys that on my yard have swastikas and things on their chest to say everything from Jesus, the N word to everything else. And it's just the way it is in prison. So that wouldn't have got him in that much trouble. What got him in trouble was that even white guys turn their back on them. Usually you can't cross those lines, those racial lines to get at somebody unless there's a race war, unless you check with that guy's race. Charles Manson's white. Well, in prison, they don't consider him white. White is a guy who stands up for his race and he's, that's to be white. He's not. He's considered a Caucasian. He just happens to be a guy who's you know, white in color. So I know that sounds kind of weird, but that's the way things are in prison. But he had swastika on his forehead. No one cared about that. It was just the way that he was and the publicity for everything he did. And the big thing was the rape of a child. He, as soon as he got to San Quentin on death row, he was assaulted. He was in North Seg and he was beat badly. And he asked to be placed in protective custody. He did not get it because back then there was no such thing. You're like, hey, you got in trouble, deal with it. You, know, you want to be a criminal? Hey, deal with it. So he didn't come out of his cell much. And then he is transferred to another prison. And that is Vacaville. And he's in what's considered a protective custody unit for a while. And it doesn't go well. It's not complete protective custody. He is in a, in a kind of a soft area for guys that are soft. But a convict named Jan Holmstrand walked by his cell, saw him in there, poured paint thinner on him, and then lit him on fire. Mm. And Charles Manson, yeah, was engulfed in flames. He had second and third degree burns on his body. He was badly hurt. And they rushed into the hospital. Was there an element of Manson thinking he was this rock star, um, just this really cocky, you know, uh, guy that, that knows all the answers and j just like his confidence and even, even the media propping him up? Did that have anything to do with why he's, uh, you know, people hated him? No. In prison, he was a victim. Um, he was not confident he was not anyway boasting he was as quiet as he could be and and i know this for a fact because i was in the adjustment center in 1988 when i got here and they had him in the adjustment center and he was screaming at night uh he did now i'll say this he was good at artistic little things he would make canes he'd make little things from the string of socks and they were really well put together the guy had creative talents and he would sell these things of course, people would immediately send them out. And if you had something made by Charles Manson, there was a group of followers, murder, memorabilia, people like that. I mean, that's now, but there were people that were obsessed, like groupies for serial killers. There was a lot of groupies for Charles Manson outside. So these guys would sell those items at high prices, and that's how he kind of got along. Because it wasn't until later on that he began to get in contact with guys from the Guns N' Roses, and some of these people that sought him out to 
like I guess to get some kind of notoriety that they were involved with a, a notorious killer. But in prison, he was a victim. He was assaulted, was stabbed, was lit on fire a number of times. And when he came to San Quentin, he was returned to San Quentin in 1986 after he was nearly burned to death. He was in the ejection center. And I met him in 1988. I was on a AC yard, which was probably one of the most dangerous yards in the nation at that time. Um, and I was out there several months till one day he pops out. I don't know what he was doing. I've never seen him before, but I knew who he was. And the thing that first struck me was how little he was. I mean, the guy's about five foot four. They write down that he's five, six or five, seven. He's lucky he's five, four and probably about a buck 30 if he's lucky. And he walked up to me immediately and I was watching. I just was watching to see what this guy was going to do. He, he approaches me very humbly, grabs my arm, my hand, and says, Brother, it's been years since I've seen you, or something to that effect. And I just looked at him like he was a piece of garbage and said, If you ever touch me again, I'll rip that arm off and beat you with it. He stumbled backwards. He kind of fell. He got up. He walked to the gate and stood in the rest. He did not move from that spot. Now, I'm not trying to be a bully. I wasn't trying to. But you got to understand, who you associate with is who you are in prison. And that particular day that he came out, he was the luckiest man in the world. And I'll tell you why. Normally in that yard, there were a bunch of white guys. And what I call, well, let's just say nuclear white guys. Had they been out there and seen him there, they would have killed him. But they didn't come out that day. Don't know why they didn't come out. There was only six of us out there that day. And all of them were Hispanic. I never saw Charles Man. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Again, but I would hear him at night screaming that Sharon Tate's ghost was coming to get him. That she was there. That he was sorry. You would hear him screaming at night. So that's my, that's my experience with Charles Manson. The guy that people feared is a myth. That guy never existed. He was a scrawny little guy who was a victim who found a foothold in a stony world to manipulate kids to killing other people. That's it. So when he said, brother, it's great to see you again, was that him trying to do something manipulative to act like... Uh metaphysical or maybe that he had actually seen you before or do you think he was just confused i don't think he was confused he may have seen me through the window of the ac where i was in the yard and i'm not a, i'm not a small guy you know for hispanic i'm i mean, i'm six one i'm well over 200 pounds maybe he saw me as being look as i said he, he understands a prison yard he understands um he understands 
the makeup of a yard. When he went outside, he probably immediately deciphered that. But that guy, right, that young guy, was very young. That guy right there, meaning me, is probably a guy you should associate with. Uh, and if you are associated with him, there's a possibility no one's going to try and do something against you. That could be, he could have assessed that whole thing with just looking at the yard and seeing how the yard was um, put together. Wasn't that risky, though? Because, like you said, you know, you're an intimidating guy and you could have hurt him. I mean, for him to grab your hand like that, or do you think that was, was he just completely out of his element? Maybe that was just his last resort almost? It's hard to say, but I don't think so. I think he calculated the whole thing. And look, I'm, I'm, as I said, I'm not, I'm not a small guy, but I don't run around with, you know, beating up people or anything like that. I, I hold my ground. I do what I do. Um, he probably just read the yard very well and said, look, this guy's a respected guy. If I get close to him, maybe, uh, you know, he knows who I am. Maybe he's heard of Charles Manson. Maybe he'll, he'll be friendly. It's hard to tell what Charles Manson was thinking, but I believe he read the yard correctly. He read how people were responding to me. Obviously, he saw maybe the way I was built, the way I, I, I moved, and all those are things that you can see. If you see a line in the Serengeti, you know if he's hunting or not by the way his posture. My posture was probably not one that I was out there trying to hunt people, and that's probably what he saw. But he never came back out again, and shortly after that, he was transferred out of there. And why was he transferred, do you know? You know, when, when San Quentin, um, the adjustment center, when you serve a, a, a certain amount of time there, if you're not a gang-affiliated guy, they usually get you out. It's, it's kind of a, a place where they put the worst of the worst. Charles Manson had just been basically lit on fire, and he was there just for a little while before they took him somewhere else. And, you know, CDC has the reason that they do what they do, they probably figured that he was at risk being there and they would only be a matter of time until someone harmed him. So they moved him out. So going back a little bit, when these Tate LaBianca murders happened, he had been uh, paroled. He, he had been given parole so many times for his various crimes. And I know there was, it was a different time and there was some reaction to this in the eighties when sentences got stricter, but even for that time, should he have really been out on the streets? Well, as I said before, he, he did have some robberies as a, as a juvenile, but most of his crimes were for car theft, GTA, um, transferring cars over state lines, pimping, pandering. Those are nonviolent crimes. Um, I'm thinking that they just, you know, he slipped through the system. And once he got with the, got together in the, the Haight-Ashbury district with guys like Roger Smith and David Smith, they kind of wanted him there. They needed him there, and they probably spoke up for him, and he stayed out. As I said, he was arrested for stopping an officer from arresting one of his girls, and it was reduced to a misdemeanor immediately. So I'm, I'm pretty confident in saying that Charles Manson um, was valuable to at least that study because they had never seen anybody respond to LSD the way he had. Yeah. And it, it just makes me think about all of the, you know, this MK ultra program that's 
fairly notorious that uh, the government agencies were running. You know, the FBI had this uh, co-Intel Pro program, the CIA a program called Chaos, both pretty similar in their missions. And I don't know if Manson should have been there, you know, early in his criminal career, when he went to be paroled, he asked, can I just stay in prison? Because I think he knew that that was all he was really capable of. I I don't know if you've experienced that, if there are guys that are afraid of what they're going to do on the outside or, or if they're just comfortable there. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think that he knew what he was going to be able to do. I don't think he knew, because he was in prison for nearly 10 years before he got out in 1967. He didn't understand the makeup of the flower children and love and all that stuff that was going on. This kind of just popped up in his doorstep. He, I think he just winged it. Once he got the his his cult going, it was all behind this this fantasy that he had. This, this stuff was just stuff I think he made up. He didn't have like a long... When he was in 1963 practicing Scientology, I don't think he had any of stuff in mind. As I said, the guy was nuts. And I don't mean in a good way. I mean, he was just really delusional. I mean, he, they carved war on the stomach of uh, La Bianca uh, murders. <laughs> That's him telling his people to do that. So those kids didn't just come up with that. That was his doctrine, his, you know, his preaching. How should we wrap it up? What do you think? Well, I mean, I think it's important that um, the listeners um, know that Charles Manson didn't always have it bad in prison, especially towards the end of his his life. He, um, as I said, some rock groups sought him out. You know, he wrote acoustic, uh, you know, songs and he did all this stuff. So at one point, you had the guy from Guns N' Roses. Uh, you know, wear a t-shirt with Manson's face on it and stuff during concert. It got people interested. He recorded an album of acoustic songs uh, titled Completion, and it was produced by Henry Rollins. Um, you know, he, he, he got a lot of fame. A lot of books have been written about, a lot of movies have been written about him. So he got a lot of fame. A lot of famous people were interested in seeing what this guy was about. He did a lot of interviews in prison. I think it was like six, seven interviews he did, even with Geraldo Rivera. But he can't help being the clown buffoon that he was. I would watch these interviews and see Jesus. Who would ever listen to this guy? He's a freaking, he's an idiot. But, you know, that's, people continued to come to him. You know, Diane Sawyer, Geraldo Rivera, The Nightly News, 60 Minutes, all these people were just chomping at the bit to talk to this guy. And that's how he lived his life. Even towards the end, um, he was actually rushed to the hospital on January 1st, 2017, um, for bleeding. Um, he was let out, and he came back within two weeks. And on the 19th of, of January, he died of cardiac arrest caused by colon cancer. He was a mess. Um, he did uh, was engaged to another woman, a young woman. She was 26 years old. He was 84 at the time. Uh, they never got married because uh, she was basically trying to get him to sign all his rights to him, to her. And this happens a lot. Guys in prison, they, um, like Manson, 
people try and take advantage of the story. Uh, one interesting part of the story, Matt, is his son. Now, we did talk about Charles Manson Jr. Well, he was, um, you know, he could never outlive the, the fame of his father. And um, on, he changed his name to Jay White. And then in 1993, he committed suicide by gunshots. So not a good ending. No, not at all. So, I mean, just to wrap up this side of it, it, you know, Manson had this, he was a pimp and he had a, an interest in controlling people and he fell in with these experiments that we don't know exactly what happened, but, you know, I, I don't know if it's a travesty that's often acknowledged that maybe this could have been prevented if the government weren't illegally experimenting on people without their consent. Well, yeah, no, absolutely. That, that had a great deal to do with it. The times, the culture had a lot to do with it too. That, that summer of love and all those things that were going on. It was, look, it was the perfect environment for a virus like Charles Manson to take hold and grow. It just, it was the perfect place. The environment was rich. The soil was primed for him to grow. Uh, the Vietnam War, all of those things played a part in this. Uh, people not trusting the government, not trusting the president, all of those things. Uh, and he used to always say it too. If you remember, he would tell people in interviews all the time, you created me. You allowed me to do what I do. And he was telling you basically what I'm saying right now. The environment, the culture, everything that was going on in America at the time gave birth to Charles Manson, the mass murderer. Yeah, and poetically enough, uh, you know, as the hippie movement, there's always a dark side to these kind of things. As it devolved, you know, more into amphetamine use, you know, and crime was more rampant. And then as the decade is changing... You know, it, it seems like Manson actually drove the death knell into the whole hippie philosophy, especially with his idiotic ramblings of, uh, you know, pseudo-spirituality, not that far off from what you would hear from your average hippie at that point, by the way. So I kind of think he just, uh, he just took him down. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're, you're pretty on point there. I mean, he used the system for what it was, and that's something that the the schools for boys and all the stuff that he went through in, in delinquency camps taught him to survive. And that's what he became, a survivor, but really a cancer because he just took hold of that culture and destroyed it. I mean, a lot of things can be said about the hippie movement and all that, but yeah, Charles Manson probably just drove a nail into the coffin that was that movement. Wow. It's amazing to, you almost, I don't feel sorry for him, but anytime someone's physically just getting picked on again, just almost like he did his whole life getting burned and he's this tiny guy, I, I don't feel bad for him, but it's ironic, you know, this big bully and to picture him, uh, you know, in a different environment. And I guess what goes around comes around, right? No, absolutely. And I, I, you know, I always sit back and I shake my head because, you know, you see these guys and the public is 
terrified of them. You know, people talk about books are written about them, movies are made by Charles Manson, Richard Ramirez, um, you know, all these, Ted Bundy, all these terrible guys. But when they get around guys who are really predators, I mean, guys in prison who are respected because of the tools they carry on their shoulders for that ultimate goal to kill another convict or another man, they shrink. They, they're, no, they're no longer scary. They, they don't seem to be um, in that chain, that food chain of scary people. And Charles Manson is a perfect example of it. He came to prison, he became a victim. Well, we will be back next time on uh, I've Been Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nagara, and these are Death Row Diaries. By the way, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries and Patreon. Also, Death Row Diaries, where you can get exclusive content and merchandise. Anyway.